Praise be Jesus Christ. Peace be with you. Today, Monday, March 20th, the Feast of St. Joseph. And uh, of course, <laughs> those of you plugged into the liturgical calendar know very well that March 20th is not actually the solemnity of St. Joseph. But this year it is because March 19th, his actual feast day, falls on a Sunday, and a Sunday of Lent, no less. And of course, nothing can um, preempt a Sunday, uh, even less so a Sunday of Lent, which is a privileged season. And so St. Joseph, although he is patriot of the universal church, human father of our Lord, he gets bumped <laughs> to the following day. So we celebrate him today, Monday, uh, the 20th of March. So today, this feast day of St. Joseph, I pray that you uh, are having a a wonderful feast day, a chance to really celebrate St. Joseph and draw close to him and uh, receive the power of, of his intercession and prayers. You know, I was just remembering <laughs> in a conversation I was having right before this podcast, three years ago today, I made my personal act of consecration to St. Joseph. And I imagine many of you did as well. Um, in 2020, that was the year of St. Joseph proclaimed by Pope Francis. Uh, for the whole church. And it was also providentially um, the year, if, if, if I remember correctly, I think it was that year, or, or maybe right at the end of 2019, that this book came out by Father Michael Gately, um, teaching us a means of consecration to St. Joseph. I think it was called like 33 Days to St. Joseph or <laughs> something like that. He has all the 33 Days books, right? Consecration to Mary, Consecration to the Sacred Heart of Jesus, Consecration to Merciful Love, and then the Consecration to St. Joseph. So I, like many of you and many of my seminarian brothers here as well, I did this consecration. And it ended, of course, on his feast day, March 19th. And of course, uh, well, 2020, March 2020, was uh, the, that, that, that horrible month of the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. And in fact, March 19th was the very day I arrived home in Oregon because the seminary had sent us all home, you know. We were shutting down. We, we uh, went back to our houses or wherever we could go, <laughs> find a place to stay, and we were going to finish up our semester online, which we did. It was very rocky, but we did it. And so this was the day I, I arrived home. And... Um, Gosh, that was such a, just a difficult season for all of us, right? I remember, I mean, for, for a couple months there, you know, I was just living um, without access to the sacraments, couldn't go to Mass, couldn't go to confession, was watching, um, I was watching live stream Masses pretty much every day online. In fact, I was looking at some pictures recently from that time on my phone and just reminded of like, you know, I built this little like ramshackle um, MacGyver style altar <laughs> for myself in my room at home with candles. And I would put my, just put my computer there and literally live stream adoration of the Blessed Sacrament. Like some chapels would let you live stream their video feed and just see the Eucharist exposed for adoration. And I would put that up sometimes just for prayer. But uh, more often, I guess I would just go out for long walks, you know, and I'd call them just my, just walking with Jesus, <laughs> walking with the Lord, because being at home would be kind of tight quarters and sometimes a little noisy. So I would just go out and have these long walks, you know, and that was my prayer time. Um, that was the best I could do. Really difficult time, I know, for the whole church, for all of us. But yet, in the midst of that, that was when so many of us, myself included, made our consecrations to St. Joseph. And I really think this is um, a particular grace that even now, three years on, is still unfolding, deepening in our lives and in the life of the church. I, I find that that's true for me. And what I mean is the grace of having St. Joseph personally for each one of us as a as a spiritual father like the human father of christ is a spiritual father to each one of us he's a human father to each one of us as he was to jesus as he is to jesus that in itself is pretty incredible grace that we can just ponder and contemplate in our hearts 
And I think, um, yeah, for me, during those months of the pandemic, those first couple months after the consecration, um, then the mystery was just beginning to kind of unfold for me. I want, even after I made the consecration, I wasn't really turning to St. Joseph very much, very intentionally. But since then, in the years following after that, I, I have begun to just integrate my relationship with him more deeply into my life and my life of prayer. Because if you think about it, so the, the principle behind the consecration to St. Joseph is essentially this, that you know, each one of us is, is, is another Christ. As a Christian, that word which literally means a little Christ, right? We're little Christs in the making. And so we, we belong to Christ and what he has belongs to us by extension. What is his is ours. That's just a theological principle, you know, on the basis of our baptism. We're adopted sons of the Father. Um, we are sons in the Son, filii in filio. And what is the Son's is ours by grace, the grace of adoption. And preeminently we see, I mean, of course, you know, his Father, God the Father, <laughs> becomes our Father by the grace of adoption. Wow, that's already like such a stunning gift of grace. Also, his human mother becomes our mother. And he explicitly says it on the cross, right? To, so to St. John, the beloved disciple, behold your mother. But in St. John, he says it to each one of us too, because we also are the beloved disciple. And so Mary becomes our mother. And then likewise, although this is only implicit in the Gospels, St. Joseph becomes our father. Christ's human father becomes our father too. Our human father among the saints in the halls of heaven. And he's not a distant father. But I think this is just the thing with St. Joseph is like, you know, he, in, even in the Gospels, he doesn't say anything. <laughs> he's not very prominent. He, he disappears. He kind of, he withdraws into the background and he, he's not drawing attention to himself. And I think it's maybe similar in our spiritual lives and like in the life and history of the church. St. Joseph has not been the most prominent saint. You know, Our Lady gets all the attention. <laughs> and she deserves it. <laughs> she gets all the feast days. She gets all the hymns. You know, we pray to her, sing to her every day. We bring her flowers and on and on and on. And St. Joseph, relatively little. Okay. Uh, every dad out there is nodding his head, right? Mother's Day is the huge celebration. Father's Day, I mean, if you're lucky, maybe you barbecue yourself a steak. <laughs> Okay, but joking aside, St. Joseph, like, he, he's, he's, the, he's most humble, right? Think of the litany of St. Joseph, if you ever prayed that. He has all these titles. Joseph Justissime, Joseph Castissime, Joseph the most just, the most chaste, the most humble, etc., etc. He is the exemplar of all the virtues of, like, perfect manhood. Like, think about this, like, Christ chose St. Joseph to be his human father. Just as he chose Mary from all eternity to be his human mother, he chose St. Joseph to be his human father. And St. Joseph, although, you know, he's not immaculately conceived like Mary, he doesn't, he's not f like free from all sin from the first moment of his conception. He's just a regular guy like any one of us. But, but the incredible thing about St. Joseph is, although, you know, he's born with original sin and he has to fight the fight like we do, he becomes a, a true sadiq in the Hebrew terminology of the time, which means like he's, he's like a living saint. A sadiq, which means a just man, is like, this is a wise man. This is a man who knows the path to life and he's walking it in every aspect of his conduct. He's tr he is truly just. And his justice makes him joyful. He overflows with joy and boundless divine life. And everything in his life is like well-ordered and balanced and regulated. And the fruit of that in him is joy. And so um, St. Joseph is a good father. He is a truly just man, a good man. And thus he's a good father. He's a good husband. He's a great role model for all of us, you know. And Father Michael Gately's book really draws out like all these themes of 
St. Joseph's life, and so it's really good for meditations on like his virtues and so on. Also, though, Joseph is, St. Joseph is, is a great um, intercessor for us, covering us with his protection. Um, he can teach us. We can ask him for help, you know, in the places that maybe we are struggling or don't really know what to do, or what the just thing to do is, or we have a hard time doing it. Um, we can go to him without shame and ask for his help to teach us the way, to show us um, by his example and to guide us in the ways of justice and right. And, you know, I, I hear sometimes, um, this is a popular saying from the Way of the Heart podcast I've mentioned before, one of my favorites, with uh, Dr. Jake Kim. Actually, he's not a doctor. Sorry, Jake. But uh, <laughs> Jake Kim, he's a great psychologist, psychiatrist. And um, Brett Powell from the Archdiocese of Vancouver, BC. So Jake Kim, Brett Powell, the Way of the Heart podcast, highly recommend it. But they frequently talk about this trifecta in the lives of men a trifecta where we can just really get stuck. And the trifecta is, it all depends on me. Um, there's nobody to help. And I don't know what to do. So it all depends on me. I'm all alone and I don't know what to do. And uh, guys who are listening to this, I mean, haven't we all been there? <laughs> That's a dangerous place for us to be, for our hearts to be. Um, St. Joseph comes right into that place. And as a sadiq, a just man, a wise man, uh, a good father, right? He can come into that place. He's a much better father than like YouTube or, <laughs> you know, I mean, anywhere else you might turn to like try to find a technique or figure out a, a way to get out of a difficult situation or like flailing around trying to figure out what to do next. Turn to St. Joseph. Turn to St. Joseph. He knows what to do. He comes to our help. So today on his feast day, St. Joseph, pray for us. Pray for all of us who are here uh, listening to this podcast, all of us who have recourse to thee, especially all of us who are consecrated to you as your spiritual sons and daughters. Come to our help. Protect us, guide us in the way of justice and peace. I should also give a shout out to St. Patrick. <laughs> we had his feast day here last Friday here at the seminary. And of course, for us, it was a solemnity, our patronal solemnity. We had a glorious mass here for his feast day. And I think honestly, without hyperbole, it was the most beautiful, glorious mass I've experienced here in all my years, my five years here at St. Patrick's Seminary. This was the best, the high point. And you know what's even better is I know things are only going to keep getting better here at St. Patrick's, even though I will be leaving soon. This place is on such a good, promising trajectory. Things are just on the up and up. Like we have this new director of sacred music, Dr. Jennifer Donaldson Novitska, who Father Mark Doherty, our rector, referred to recently as the best in the world. <laughs> and I think he's right. I mean, I think he's right. She's, she's like a force of nature. She's something else. She came in, um, she was kind of here last semester, but she was also still teaching at another seminary where she used to work. So she was here only like part-time. For that reason, she didn't do much in the fall. She was just kind of getting, you know, easing into it and, and planning. This semester, she's gone in 110%. She's formed a scola, about 20 seminarians, probably more or less. And she's doing Gregorian chant and polyphony and she's teaching these guys. She's teaching all of us. I think I've mentioned she's doing individual voice lessons for all of us. But then also with the school, she's really you know, working hard to, to build that up. And so the result was <laughs> on Friday was the first time we really heard them sing for a liturgy. And it's, so it's been a couple months of you know, intensive practice. And then this was their kind of debut moment and everyone was blown away. It was so breathtaking. Um, from the moment we entered the chapel in the entrance procession, I was a deacon in the procession, so we were coming in. The scola were lining both sides of the aisle, which is something new here, but that's a traditional monastic kind of thing to do. So as we're processing in, the scola are standing on either side of us, singing in, and the sound was just swelling up and filling the whole chapel and echoing and resounding with the glory of their voices. And it was the, the Gregorian introit, the entrance chant um, for the comment of a confessor bishop. I forget what it is now, but it might be um, 
Justus ut palma florebit. The just man flourishes like the palm tree. Beautiful. Uh, anyway, um, whatever it was, you know, Gregorian chant is, is homophonic. So everyone sings the same part. It's, it's one voice, no matter how many singers you have. It's all, they're all singing like the, what would be the melody, right? But uh, Dr. Donaldson's innovation was to have a few singers sing this low drone, just a single note, oh, you know, like a fifth below the lowest note of the melody or whatever it was. Actually, I'd like to ask her, how did she pick the pitch for the drone? That's, that's, I have to ask her that because I would like to do this sometime with a scola in a parish because the, the drone actually added something really, really powerful to the Gregorian chant. And I know that like, in, this isn't an innovation per se, because even like in the Middle Ages, they would do this sometimes. Like if you listen to uh, some chants composed by Hildegard of Bingen, you'll hear sometimes there's a drone. And of course, in the Eastern Church, they do it all the time. They have the ison, which is a, a kind of a drone as well. So she had the low drone, then also a high drone, a few voices on, on a high voice, uh, on a high drone. And so there were these two drones going on that created this very just resonant um, effect supporting the Gregorian chant. And their voices are filling the chapel and there's the incense as we're coming in. And Oh my gosh, you know, <laughs> sacred music, when it's really done well, has this effect of like the heavens open up and we're just transported into the glorious sacred and cosmic liturgy of heaven. Like we're just taken up into something higher. The whole mass, I was just, I just, I think I had this goofy smile on my face because I was like, just filled with spiritual delight and joy. It was so incredible. Oh, and then at the end, at the end, they sang um, the full hymn, the breastplate of St. Patrick with, you know, the lively organ accompaniment in the background. Oh, it's so incredible. Um, in fact, you will have heard the beginning of it as the uh, opening music for this podcast today because I just, I just had to share, you know, <laughs> a little, little taste of this. Of course, I'd heard this hymn before, you know, and I, I know this prayer. I've prayed this prayer. Um, I've known it for years. I don't pray it very often, although now I think maybe I will. I've never heard the whole hymn sung from beginning to end. And with good reason, I think, because it took us about nine minutes <laughs> to get through the whole thing. But man, was it worth it. And I wasn't feeling at any point, I wasn't feeling like rushed or like, okay, come on, let's get, let's get on with it. You know, we've got to finish this up. No, I was in deep prayer. And, and I think my brothers were too. Like we were just taken into this deep prayer, carried along by the music. And verse after verse after verse, you know, St. Patrick is praying, invoking the name of Christ and the Trinity, and it's kind of a spiritual warfare type of prayer, you know. I bind unto myself today the strong name of the Trinity, da -da -da -da, like throughout the whole thing. Um, he's basically putting on the armor of God, you know, for battle. And, uh, oh my gosh, it was so powerful, so powerful. So that liturgy really fired me up. You know, and, and as I say, it's like, I'm just so proud of this place. I'm really, really proud of St. Patrick's Seminary. And I, I love this place. I love to see like the direction that it's going and the trajectory is just on the up and up. And uh, I'm proud, you know, in a couple months, I'm going to be an alumnus of St. Patrick's. I'm so grateful for the formation I've received here. Year after year, it's just gotten better and better. And I'm really excited to come back as a priest, you know, as often as I, as I can, um, and to continue supporting this place and to see future generations of priests coming from here, especially coming back to our Archdiocese of Portland. You know, it's gonna be such a gift for all of you in Oregon, listening to this, in future years to have more and more priests coming from here. I think you all are gonna be really, really pleased <laughs> with what you see <laughs> and what what gifts these men bring to the table um, in our archdiocese and I say that with you know real humility but just just a lot of gratitude um, for what the Lord is doing here so yeah thanks be to God thanks be to God thanks be to our, our holy patron St. Patrick 
and St. Joseph, our Father in heaven, and all the saints. And I hope that you all also have uh, enjoyed some good celebration for these two great feast days, St. Patrick, St. Joseph, and uh, that, they, that they will continue to intercede for you and grant all your prayers. By the way, on Friday, of course, we didn't just have the Mass. We also had a big party, <laughs> big feast. We took advantage of the dispensation to eat meat on a Lenten Friday. A lot of meat was consumed. A lot of Guinness was flowing. We had some good karaoke here, singing some Irish songs. And uh, a, great, a good time was had by all. So <laughs> we honored St. Patrick, not only in the sacred liturgy, but also the, uh, the, the joy of brothers living together in unity as this book of Psalms says. All right, let's put a cap on that. Um, I haven't been doing much Dickens reading. I have to confess, I've fallen behind on Dombey and Son. I'm only in the like mid-20s. I think the club is like in the 50s, chapter 50-something, 50 <laughs> way ahead of me. And uh, that, that's, that, that seems to keep happening to me. <laughs> the last few Dickens books we've read, I just I, I end up falling behind. And it's kind of discouraging, and then I have to catch up. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's only discouraging because then I, I kind of get left out of the wider conversations in the group. So I haven't been following what's going on in the weekly posts on reninkpaper.com, precisely because I don't want to get the story spoiled for me ahead of time. So I just have to catch up. Hopefully this week I can do some more sustained reading and... Uh, uh, get back on track with the rest of the group. But for those of you reading along, I really hope you're enjoying it, and I'm, I'm excited to catch up and see where the story goes because um, I'm really, really enjoying it, even though I'm kind of taking it at a snail's pace. <laughs> so hopefully soon I'll have some more to share about Dombey and Son, and hopefully also we will have uh, the, our friends from the DCRC, Rachel and Bose, on as well in the coming weeks to discuss this book once we have all finished it. Until then, though, let us jump over now and continue our weekly Carmelite conversation, picking up where we left off with St. Teresa and the Interior Castle. Los Whoever is a little one, let him come to me. I have no need to climb to the height of the great saints, but I just have to be myself, a little child. In these words of scripture, I found at last my little way to become a saint. Well, last week, uh, there was no podcast, so... <laughs> I just remembered that. Apologies for skipping last week. I uh, ran out of time to record and uh, just, yeah, disappeared. <laughs> so sorry about that. The week before last, though, we were discussing the fourth dwelling places of St. Teresa's interior castle. And if you recall, in the fourth dwelling places, the soul begins to enter into the prayer of quiet, which she describes as the, the first... Um, stage, the beginning of contemplative prayer. And you all will remember, I'm sure, the distinction between contemplative prayer and um, acquired or, or, or active prayer. The, the primary distinction is that contemplative prayer begins in God. It comes from God as a free gift. He simply gives it to the soul as he wills, but especially when the soul is disposed to receive it. So we dispose ourselves, right, by the practice of mental prayer, recollection, and all of that. We've already mentioned all that. And, and, and when the soul is kind of disposed and when God wills to give the gift, then he places the soul into the prayer of quiet, whereby the will, remember the faculties of the soul, the will is one of the faculties or, or acting parts of our soul by which we will things. <laughs> the will allows us to will something, to, to aim at something as a goal, and ultimately to love something. The will is, is that part of us that goes out of ourselves to love somebody else. So God places the will at rest. It's as if he holds it in his hands, like a little puppy, <laughs> and just puts it to sleep, you know, and just holds it there, suspended. 
The will is not acting. And that's something very unusual. If you, if you think about it, bracketing off any experiences of contemplative prayer that we might have had, just bracket that off for a moment. At what other time in our lives have we ever experienced a state of not willing something? Asleep? <laughs> That's probably about it. When we're asleep, right? And, and even in sleep, you could make the case that we're willing something in our dreams. Like, if you ever have, have kept a dream journal or um, anything like that, you, you, you might you might recognize even in dreams we're actually like willing something we're kind of there's a part of us subconsciously that's working out um, desires and things so that's a question I'm not too sure about but so put a question mark next to sleep but in our waking life gosh we're always willing things aren't we we're always desiring things we're always aiming at something whenever we're acting we have a goal in mind Pretty much. And even when we don't have a goal consciously in mind, there's things that we're willing. There's things that we're aiming at that we want all the time. So this is something very, very special that God places the will at rest. He suspends it. And in fact, what happens here is, don't think of it like the will is emptied out. Don't think of it like that at all. Like the will's not willing anything. I know, I might have said that a moment ago, actually. And if I did, just delete that from your memory. <laughs> I didn't mean that. It's not that the will is not willing anything, like it's just empty, a blank slate. The will is willing only God. So when I say God holds the will in his hands and suspends it, what I really mean is the will is fixed on him to the exclusion of everything else. The will is absorbed in God. And the will thereby, you know, oftentimes our, our normal experience of willing is, you might say it's kind of fragmented. Or if not fragmented, then at least it's kind of like multitasking, whereby, you know, you, you, we never really do many things at once maybe, but some people say we just get really good at, at like lightning fast switching between activities. The will, maybe the activity of the will is kind of like that. We're, we're, we're constantly moving between different targets. <laughs> this, then this, and that, and that, that. You know, this is what I want for lunch, and this is the project I have to get done by Friday. And then, and then I start thinking about, you know, oh, I got to save all this money to buy this thing. And then, you know, this is my long-term goal, my five-year plan. And then I'm back to, oh, I got to run this errand. So we're like willing all kinds of different things practically all at once. But in, in the prayer of quiet, in contemplative prayer, when the will is absorbed in God, we are willing nothing but God. We only will God. St. Teresa even says that the will, properly speaking, is not even engaged in loving as we normally understand love, <laughs> as, a, as an act of the will. The will's not acting. The will's not doing anything. It's utterly absorbed in the in the presence of God who is present to the soul in contemplative prayer at a level closer than we experience in any other kind of relationship at all. In contemplative prayer, God is closer to us than we are to ourselves. In fact, you know, that's always true. But in contemplative prayer, the, the, the closeness of God is unveiled a little bit and the soul experiences it a little bit. Just enough that the will is absorbed in him. And so the will is absorbed, the intellect is not absorbed. The intellect is the part of us that's, that thinks about things, you know, obviously, intellect, intellectus. The intellect knows things. The intellect ponders things. The intellect understands things. And the intellect thinks about things. And so during the prayer of quiet, the will is absorbed, the intellect is not. The intellect is free. Therefore, the experience normally in the prayer of quiet, the beginning of contemplative prayer, is a very, very settled mind, but not a silent mind. It's not a thoughtless mind. R rather, you know, thoughts continue to just come and go. They'll, they'll just sail past like ships on the, <laughs> the ocean of the mind, or to use another image that one priest I know likes to use, they'll just kind of come up like, they'll just bubble up. Bubbles from the ocean floor arising to the surface of our awareness 
and they'll just you know briefly appear there on the surface and then they pop and they disappear so they come they go and what we want to do with the thoughts we, we don't want to fight them we certainly don't want to fight them or try to repress them because in the interior life of the soul what we focus on um, is what we're going to get more of. <laughs> That's just a basic rule of our, of our human nature. Experience itself suffices to, to prove that. So if we focus on the thoughts by trying to repress them, um, then we're only going to generate more thoughts. <laughs> and it's going to disrupt our prayer. But there's another reason we don't want to really fight the thoughts, and that's because, as I mentioned last week, the thoughts themselves can be a sign of a kind of a deep interior work of healing and, and purification and a profound transformation that is occurring during the prayer of quiet. See, one of the effects of contemplative prayer is that places in our, in our soul that are wounded, um, places in us, you know, where we have like deep, deeply disordered passions and attractions and attachments and compulsions, even addictions, like these are deeply rooted things in the soul. And anyone who's ever struggled with these kind of things, these like deeply rooted places of fill in the blank, right? Anyone who's ever struggled with these knows that it's beyond our human strength to uproot them, right? First rule of the, the first step, I should say, of the 12 steps, right, of Alcoholics Anonymous is uh, I'm powerless to overcome my addiction. But then step two is I'm aware that a higher power, namely God, can set me free and deliver me from this addiction that I'm powerless to overcome on my own. That spiritual insight, uh, and it, it applies across the board in the spiritual life, uh, particularly to these places of very deeply rooted dysfunctions in the soul, those places in us are healed through the practice of contemplative prayer. And this is actually a very important insight. I, I, I know I touched on it in the last episode, but I just want to unpack it a little bit again because um, it was a huge revelation to me the first time I heard this. But the state of contemplative prayer is actually a state of rest which is deeper than sleep. And this has been shown through uh, scientific experiments where they've actually, you know, hooked like Carmelite nuns, <laughs> for example, up to an, uh, what do you call it, EKG machine, I, I suppose, or something that measures the electrical impulses in the brain. And what they have seen is that when these these were like experienced nuns, seasoned, you know, they're in a very advanced stage of the spiritual life. And when these nuns would go into the prayer of recollection and they would be drawn into contemplative prayer, prayer of quiet, even the prayer of union, which we'll talk about in a minute, that the, that the, the measurable electrical activity of their brains would drop to a state deeper than REM sleep deeper than the deepest state of, of sleep. And they were confounded by this because this is not a state that's naturally accessible to us, but God takes the, the soul and even the body, the nervous system into this state of deep rest when he draws us into contemplative prayer. So just I just offer that as a, an illustration of what's happening on the level of the soul and the body. The two, of course, the two are, are united in us. You know, what happens with the soul is reflected in the body and vice versa. So God draws us into this deep state of rest where the will is absorbed. This is the, the, the absorption of the will is the beginning of the deep state of rest that is contemplative prayer. And when we enter into this deep rest, he can begin to heal the places in us at a very, very deep level. Much deeper than we can achieve on our own or even through therapeutic interventions and so on. And, and so um, the occurrence of thoughts in the prayer of quiet can actually be a very, very good sign, a symptom of the healing that is occurring down deep in the soul, deeper than our awareness. The thoughts that bubble up are 
you know, often going to be related to the dysfunctions in us that are being healed by the Lord, by His activity. And so maybe sometimes they can be distressing to us, but actually uh, we, we, we ought to remember this teaching and give thanks to God when those thoughts arise and then simply just let them be and they'll go away on their own and then maybe others will come and then those will go and we just let them come and go very effortlessly. And St. Teresa says in the prayer of quiet, when thoughts come, if they're distracting to us, well, what we ought to do is just, um, just maybe quite gently utter a single word. Jesus. Jesus. Like a person, she says charmingly, like a person giving a little puff to a candle when he sees that it's almost gone out so as to make it burn again. So just a little puff to a candle. Jesus. Jesus. And just return our awareness to his presence. And the thoughts will just do what they will. And, you know, we don't fight them. They just come and go. But deep down in the soul, God is doing this work of healing, purification, and transformation. In fact, even the... Um, there's, there's, there's literally knots of, of tension and stress in our nervous system that are being untied and, and released in our times of contemplative prayer. And it's all happening at a level deeper than our awareness. But you see, like, like St. Therese had this insight when she used to actually literally fall asleep in prayer. <laughs> and who hasn't had that experience, right? Incidentally, if we find that we're falling asleep in our times of, of uh, you know, mental prayer, or recollection, um, that's probably a sign we need to get some more sleep. <laughs> so also with that, you know, we shouldn't really fight it or, or feel like shame about it. But uh, it can be a sign to us that we ought to work on getting some more sleep at night, too. Um, but that's just an aside. What, what St. Therese realized, she had the beautiful insight that God actually put her to sleep during her times of prayer. And, and she said, um, I'm no less pleasing to him as a little girl asleep on his lap than I am wide awake and playing before his face or something like that, you know. And so, but, 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 but her insight was God would put her to sleep like the divine physician, like a surgeon puts his patient to sleep to do deep surgery. So God would put Therese to sleep in prayer to do deep work of healing in her heart. So it's not at all that our prayer is less fruitful or less important or something um, when we're in a state of deep rest. Even if we go to sleep, it doesn't matter to God. God is, is doing the deep work in us in contemplative prayer. And he suspends the faculties of the soul precisely so that he can get at the deep, deep layers of us that are so often inaccessible because of the frenetic activity <laughs> of our intellect and our will. What are the other effects of contemplation? Just to touch on these briefly, St. Teresa of Avila describes the spiritual delights that God gives to a soul through the practice of contemplative prayer. And the spiritual delights are different from consolations. So um, if you're more familiar with Ignatian spirituality, then you, then you probably know a lot about consolation. Consolation, basically, for, for Teresa, con con consolations, not contemplation, <laughs> consolations refer to our own human emotional experiences that come about in prayer. So I might feel happiness. I might feel sadness. <laughs> That's not a consolation, but it is an emotion. <laughs> but in prayer, you know, we naturally have these just human emotions that arise up in us. I might feel a feeling of great attraction, you know, towards God, love for God at the level of my emotions, my passions. I might feel like compunction for my sins. And actually a feeling of sadness in that sense could be a, a kind of a consolation because that feeling of sadness will lead to repentance and reconciliation with God. So anyway, it's our emotional, our affective response to God. The consolations exist at that level and they're, they're good. But spiritual delights are something different. Spiritual delights are infused. And basically spiritual delights correspond 
to the gifts, not the gifts, but the fruits of the Holy Spirit, as described in St. Paul's letter to the Galatians. So, you know, um, peace, joy, love, self-control, all all these um, fruits of the indwelling presence of God. So, and when we experience them interiorly within us, but they're also exteriorly evident and verifiable. So in contemplative prayer, we may or may not experience consolation. And, and more often than not, we probably won't. We won't probably experience a lot of happiness and, you know, kind of the warm, fuzzy feelings that are more common at the very beginnings of the spiritual life. Okay, those are not as prevalent as we get into the later stages of prayer, of contemplative prayer, because the soul now has, has likely passed through the dark night of the senses, and it's no longer being fed with milk like a, a child. It's being fed with the food of strong men, just to include the language of St. John of the Cross here a little bit. So the soul now has, has kind of graduated to another stage, a, a stage of greater maturity. And God doesn't need to give the soul those consolations as much, although he will give some from time to time, just as little, you know, gifts along the journey. But the experience of spiritual delights, the fruits of the Holy Spirit, that will become kind of the daily bread and butter of the soul in contemplative prayer. And not only in the actual times of prayer, but throughout one's life, um, the fruits of the Spirit will become more and more evident. Now, as we receive those spiritual lights, the fruits of the Spirit, more and more, our capacity to receive them also grows. And I know I mentioned this in the last episode, so I won't dwell on it here, but our capacity increases. The more we receive, the more we can receive. So it's a virtuous cycle. Um, St. Teresa says that servile fear of God tends to disappear. It fades away because the soul is now more and more in very close contact with God. And so, you know, maybe earlier in the spiritual life, a person was very afraid of offending God with a kind of a servile fear. Like it's more like a fear um, of God's punishment. It's more a fear that, oh, if I sin, God will reject me. He'll abandon me. He'll send me to hell. And so out of that kind of a fear, the soul tried to refrain from sin. Okay, that's fine as far as it goes, but it's, that's kind of immature. Um, it's not perfect, you know. A better, more mature disposition towards God is refraining from sin, not out of fear that God's going to reject me or, or send me to hell, but I want to refrain from sin just because I want to be close to Him. And I know that sin takes me away from him. And I don't want to do anything that would take me away from God. I want to be close to him in his embrace. So the soul experiencing contemplative prayer already in the fourth dwelling places begins to lose that kind of immature, servile fear of God. And it grows instead in a deep and abiding confidence in God. Confidence in his mercy, confidence in his goodness, confidence in his love. And likewise, as a fruit of that confidence, um, it's going to refrain from sin. Because, not, not now because it's afraid of offending God, but because it knows how good he is and it wants to stay with him. But then at the same time, the soul in, in, in the prayer of quiet in the fourth dwelling places is becoming more and more sensitive to its own weaknesses and imperfections and, you know, attachments to sin and all of that. It's more and more sensitive to those places in itself. And so confidence in God goes up, but any kind of um, false self-confidence in the sense of self-reliance, that is very quickly diminishing and going down and disappearing. And you see running through all of this, the thread of of humility, right? Which St. Teresa says is simply walking in the truth, uh, living in reality, the soul experiencing contemplative prayer is preeminently in touch with reality because it's experiencing the deepest reality of all, which is the closeness of the living God. And everything else is kind of 
more and more just being exposed and seen in the light of that ultimate reality, which is God is closer to us than we are to ourselves. As we experience that, it's a lived reality more and more, everything else is seen in a new light, in the true light. Um, the philosophers say, subspecie eternitatis, under the, the appearance of eternity, you know, as things appear from the eternal perspective. And then finally, as, as all this is taking place in the soul, including that, that deep work of healing I mentioned earlier, and, and all of this, the fruits of the Spirit, all of it, um, the very natural result is the soul is becoming more and more free. It's free from attachments, free from dysfunctions. Again, it's not going to be perfect right away. This isn't overnight. We're talking little by little, um, sta by stages, gradually, over, over decades, right? Now, the, there's no, like, just to be clear, there's no, like, time limit on this. There's no, like... Um, usual <laughs> uh, this, this, this stage should be done in three to five years you know it's not it's not like that remember St. Teresa says every soul goes by its own unique path that's why there's many many dwelling places um, we have our own our own paths to take and so there's no cookie cutter there's no GPS directions there's no ETA you know this happens on God's time not our time but little by little, according to God's timing, we will become free from attachment, free from all our dysfunctions, healed of all our wounds, led into more perfect self-control, self-mastery, the strengthening of all the virtues, the life of sanctity, um, the life of perfection. Remember, ultimately this way, this way through the interior castle is the way of perfection. But it's God who perfects us over time and we cooperate. We're not perfecting ourselves. And the place that all those things in us are finally kind of healed actually is the fifth dwelling places. The fifth dwelling places. Remember, there's still two more dwelling places to go after this. So <laughs> it's pretty, uh, it, should be, it, should, it should inspire in us kind of a wonder and a sense of awe. Like, wow, by the fifth dwelling places, everything is kind of healed in us what's left <laughs> and in answer to that i can only say uh let's wait for future episodes and see what saint Teresa has to show us but in the fifth dwelling places here's what happens saint Teresa um, uses the image of a caterpillar which has gone into its cocoon you know in the fourth dwelling places it's like it went into its cocoon and the will is is just um, suspended by God and absorbed in God. And in the fifth dwelling places, the caterpillar emerges from the cocoon as a beautiful butterfly. The prayer of the fifth dwelling places is referred to as the prayer of union. The prayer of union. And what's happening in the prayer of union is all the faculties of the soul are now absorbed in God. Not just the will anymore, but the intellect, the memory, I would say even the heart. <laughs> Everything in us is absorbed in God. So th this, this kind of prayer, the prayer of union, is thoughtless prayer. We don't have thoughts coming and going anymore. Um, it's not, the mind is not just settled, the mind is still, the mind is silent. There is no interior activity at least coming from us. The, the only one acting is God. The soul is entirely at rest. Think now of St. John of the Cross, the first canticle of the dark night of the soul. One dark night, fired by love's urgent longings, I went out unseen. Ah, the sheer grace. My house being now all stilled. That's the experience of the prayer of union. My house is now all stilled. Not a creature is stirring, not even a mouse. <laughs> everything is still, everything is silent. Only God is acting. St. Teresa refers to this state as the conforming union. Conforming union. And as just a little um, 
foreshadowing of, of coming attractions, we will soon be contrasting the conforming union with the transforming union, but that still is yet to come. But now in the fifth dwelling places, the soul experiences conforming union, which is to say it is completely conformed to the will of God. I always think of conforming like, um, you know, you, you take water and you pour it into a pitcher and the water takes on the shape of the pitcher just, just effortlessly, immediately, because the, the, the water is completely surrounded and shaped by the pitcher. Do you see what I mean? Maybe it's not the best image, but that's how I kind of think about it. Like conforming in the sense of, again, it's this effortless kind of activity. The soul does, the soul's not working at this, at this stage, other than simply by cooperating with grace and by disposing itself to receive the gift, you know, and faithfully entering into prayer. But the soul now is utterly conformed to the will of God. It, and in prayer, all the faculties are absorbed. And so, and so now, even in its daily life, like let's just say the daily life of the person who's regularly experiencing the prayer of union, the state of conforming union, of course, the person is still free. The person can still choose to commit sin. Um, but it's very difficult to imagine that such a person will choose to commit even a venial sin knowingly, but certainly not a mortal sin. Um, it's very difficult to imagine that a, that, that a person in the conforming union would commit a, a, a sin because it's so in love with God that it wants nothing but Him and to do His will. This is a kind of an ecstatic prayer. The soul that goes into the prayer of union is, is taken up out of itself and into God. And so it's even more a foretaste of heaven than anything else the soul has experienced so far. And I think one, one thing St. Teresa says that's very telling, very revealing, is that you know, whereas the prayer of quiet, sometimes it can be a little uncertain because it, it's so like, it's, it, it's, it's more subtle. You can experience the prayer of quiet and afterwards you're like, I think, I think that was contemplative prayer. I think the Lord gave me the gift of the prayer of quiet, but I'm not quite sure. <laughs> there were a lot of thoughts coming up and I was kind of distracted and, and the prayer of quiet sometimes just comes like a blip. You experience it for, you know, 15 seconds, maybe, or a minute, and then it, it, it's gone. And so it, it, it's kind of like that. It just it comes, and, and you're not quite sure. But the prayer of union, oh, St. Teresa says, uh, in the prayer of union, the soul is certain, the soul is certain that it was in God, and God was in it. There is no doubt. So, if this is lighting your heart on fire, as it is mine just talking about it, I, I have to confess, as I'm talking about this, I think, Lord, I want this prayer. I want this prayer. I want to be this close to you. So, what do we do? Well, St. Teresa says, just to go back to last week, we, we, we can ask for the grace. At the same time, what do we really need? There's the three criteria we really always need for progress in prayer. Number one, humility. Number two, detachment. Number three, simplicity. So humility, walking in the truth. Detachment, I don't deserve to receive this. We can ask for it, but we don't, we don't expect it. We just dispose ourselves to receive the gift as God wills to give it. And then simplicity, we just try to practice our simple and effortless ways of prayer as best we can. Going into prayer, recollected, and disposing ourselves to receive the gift. And God will give it in his, in his own good time, at his own good pleasure, when it's most suitable for us, um, when it will do us the most good, when, we, when we're ready to receive it, when we need to receive it, he will give the gift, as he gives all good gifts in his time. Finally, just as a, a last note, I received a question on the last episode of the podcast when I, I first spoke about this idea of um, 
contemplative prayer healing and purifying the soul at a deep level, you know. And I received this question about um, the relationship between contemplative prayer, right, and, and God's action to heal the soul on the one hand, and on the other hand, human means, um, human relationships, evidence-based therapeutic practices, and, and, and just expanding that out in general, the human experience of, of love and being loved, which is so healing for the soul. The question was, how do these two things work together um, to foster our wholeness, our growing integration, our, our healing as human persons? the human means and the divine action in contemplative prayer? I thought, it's such a good question, such a good question. And briefly, here is how I would answer it. So both are very necessary in our human relationships, right? In, in, in loving relationships, especially those very privileged relationships where we give and receive unconditional love. So, Ideally, this would be like our family relationships, um, our spouses, if we're married, and then our very close friends, you know, our, our intimate, like committed friends. Those are the places that we're going to give and receive unconditional love, um, ideally. And, and, and again, no human relationship is perfect. So we're also going to probably hurt each other. <laughs> we're going to give and receive some wounds because... Even if there's no ill will, we're imperfect and we kind of blunder around sometimes and do damage without realizing it like bulls in a china shop. So there's that as well. But, but, in, but you know, we also, we really receive, we really receive love and we really need to receive love um, through those human means, human relationships. We first learn what God's love is through human mediation, through the love of our, of our parents our mother and our father, even before we're consciously aware of it in the very earliest years of our childhood, even within our mother's womb, we are learning at a deep level what it is to be loved. And uh, incidentally, the wounds we receive in those very early years, those inner wounds which are defined by Dr. Bob Schutz basically as you know, places in our story, in our history, that we ought to have received love, but we did not. So those can be some of the very deepest and most destructive wounds in our souls. The places as children, as children, when our understanding of God's love was just beginning to be formed in us, that we didn't receive the love we should have received. And uh, those are places that are just very, very sacred in us because only God can heal that, you know, <laughs> but he can and he, he, he does, he wills to, if we, if we just can receive his love there, he wants to fill those places up in us. Anyway, but, but, but it's part of God's plan though for us as human beings that we receive actually his love mediated to us through loving human relationships, beginning with our parents and our families, our siblings, and then our friends, our spouses, our children, you know, one day, and, and all of this in a, a normal human life is just a network of all these relationships where we give and receive love, and that's part of God's divine plan for humanity. And so uh, the healing of our hearts leading to wholeness and integration absolutely requires these mediated experiences of God's love through human relationships. In fact, um, the experience of being loved, of giving and receiving love, is therapeutic for us. In the sense of, the Greek sense of that word just simply means healing. It's healing for us to be loved unconditionally and to love another unconditionally, to give ourselves uh, out of love for another. So the experience of loving and being loved, it not only teaches us about God's love, it forms in us a, a deep sense of what it means to be loved by God, prepares us to receive his love, um, but it also, that experience itself of giving and receiving love, humanly, is already a mediated, a mediated experience of the love of God. 
as the Latin hymn says, Ubi caritas est vera, Deus ibi est. Wherever love is true, God is there. There's a deep theological truth in that, that we would do well to contemplate more often, you know. So um, that's the beginnings of an answer to that question. But, but on the flip side, um, there's this, which as I, as I already mentioned, just to reiterate, in contemplative prayer, we receive the love of God immediately, which means in this case, not like right away, <laughs> like at the snap of our fingers, but without any mediation. God, it's God and the soul. Um, face to face, eye to eye, heart to heart, as Newman says, cor ad cor loquitur, heart speaks into heart. The heart of God, the heart of Jesus, um, the blessed Trinity speaking unto the soul, not only speaking, but this deep exchange of love at a level deeper than our conscious awareness. That's what's happening in contemplative prayer. And there's no mediation, it's direct. God and the soul, one-on-one. -on -one. And that experience, um, that experience is healing and integrative of the soul at a level that's simply deeper than any human mediation of love can accomplish. It's deeper than any therapeutic intervention can reach. And saying that is no denigration of our human experiences or of therapeutic interventions, which are very good and necessary. But I think we've all experienced this too, um, if not in therapy, then just in our normal relationships that, okay, there's kind of a limit. Who hasn't had this experience of you love somebody and you want to give your whole self to them and you cannot? You simply cannot. I think even those of you who are married probably have had this experience, right? There are depths of yourself you cannot give to your spouse. You simply can't. There are depths of your spouse that cannot be given to you. There's a limit in us because of our, simply of our human finitude and our creaturely nature. We can't possess another person fully and we can't pos even possess ourselves fully enough to give ourselves away fully to another. And so there are depths of us that can't be reached by another human being. There are depths of us that we don't even know ourselves. But God does. God does. He reaches the depths of our nature. He searches the deep, the secret places of ourselves. And there in the depths, He gives Himself to us. And He receives us fully, all that we are. All that we are. He knows us through and through. And He unites Himself to us there at the very depths of our being. The deepest and most central part of our soul. And that experience of giving and receiving the love of God, that experience is deeply healing and transformative for the soul. And so that's, that's how I would begin to answer this very, very good, insightful question. And I hope that uh, it's, it's, uh, it's helpful for all of you. My thanks to the listener who submitted it, and I encourage all of you, all of you listening, if you have any questions, please feel free to submit them at any time. I'm happy to receive them and happy to answer them as best as I can. And you can all reach me. Many of you obviously know me and <laughs> have your own ways to reach me, but if you don't have any other way, you can always reach me at inyourembrace.com contact. And you could submit a question, or you could also submit a voice recording of yourself asking a question if you're bold and I will even include it in the podcast and then answer it viva voce. <laughs> so I always welcome audience participation. I shouldn't even say audience, I should say community participation because as you know here at In Your Embrace we're, we're a big community all together. All right dear friends, well I'm going to wrap this podcast up today. Look forward to speaking with you all again here soon. And until then, the Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Go in peace. Mm -hmm.